0: Well, once again, we have an amazing privilege that we never want to underestimate. We have the privilege of coming together and humbling ourselves before the word of the living God. And I must confess that it is always the burden of my heart when I stand before you to see Christ formed in you. So that he can be glorified and you can experience just the joy of what it is to be in Christ. So I trust that you've prepared your heart this morning to hear the word of the Lord and to be edified, to be equipped, to be encouraged. So take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We have come now to chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. And what a blessing it is to see mature believers crave the word and obey the word and how sad it is when you see immature believers who have no desire for the word and who do not live consistently with it. And by the way, this was part of the problem that we have seen in the church at Corinth as we've studied this so far. And this is what required Paul to write to them. Ignorance and satanic deception Along with false teachers and the worldly culture in which they live, all merged together to influence their lives, and their church, as a result, was a mess. In fact, if you think through just the chronology of the problems that we've seen thus far in 1 Corinthians, we see that they were proud and self willed, they were plagued by social, political, and philosophical factions. They were enamored by the wisdom of the world. They were like baby Christians whose spiritual growth had been stunted by their love for their worldly culture around them. They tolerated gross immorality even in the church. They were suing each other over petty things. Some of the marriages were in absolute shambles, struggling, even failing. They were abusing Christian liberty. And others were on the other extreme and turned into legalists. And so there was a battle going on over those kinds of things. They were confused about male-female relationships and their roles, about authority and submission. And they were, as we're going to see today, abusing the Lord's table. Later on, we're going to see that they were even abusing their spiritual gifts. So there was a lot of chaos And so the Apostle Paul, we know, learned about these things from oral reports, and he's responded to them in a letter. Recall in chapter 7 and verse 1, he says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, and that's what we have been examining. But, you know, as I reflect upon the problems at the church at Corinth, it's obvious that every church deals with these same kinds of things. Calvary Bible Church deals with these same kinds of things. I mean, think about it. Every church is made up of believers as well as non-believers. Some churches have far more non-believers in them than believers. People that are spiritually dead, that are at enmity with God. And therefore, the things of the Spirit that are revealed in the Word are foolishness to them. So they really don't want anything to do with it. And so they will not want to hear the truth. The Apostle Paul had to help Timothy in the churches at Ephesus. He was, he was dealing with this. He said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And frankly, that describes what is ostensibly evangelical churches today. And it may even describe some of you. You really don't want to hear sound doctrine. You really don't want to hear truth. So you reject that. You turn away from that. And you get sucked into myths. And even as regenerate people, those of us who know and love Christ, we must all admit that within us, we still have the remnants of, of corruption and death, right? Well, sin no longer Rains it still remains we have to acknowledge that and most of it we can't even see we carry about within us remnants of the old atom we have shall we say a virus in our heart we all have those secret delicious sins that creep around in the shadows of our imagination and every now and then express themselves in ways that we may not even be aware of We're prone to evil passions, to self-will, to self-indulgence, to self-adoration. And our selfish demands for, for affirmation and for control are like wells of poisoned water that send out streams of every imaginable kind of impurity. And while our heart has been radically transformed by the power of Christ, I must say it is still a den of unclean birds It still houses deadly vipers. It is still a place where every loathsome creature that would mock God and exalt self still lives. And many times it's hard for us to see. Indeed, our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Dear friends, what would we do if it were not for God's mercy and grace, right? I'm starting out really depressing you, right? I mean, that's really bad news. We're just bad people. And yet we've been saved. We've been forgiven. We've been redeemed. Because even we ourselves as twice-born saints remain in the bondage of our unredeemed humanness. Therefore, we are vulnerable to the lusts of the flesh that want to rule in our life and with this reminder of of our ongoing need for progressive sanctification that comes through the systematic in-depth teaching, preaching, and application of the word. As we are aware of all of that, we can better understand the issues that Paul was dealing with at Corinth. You see, these dear people, like us many times, were arrogant, they were divisive, They were self-indulgent and forgetful of Christ. And I might say that there's not a person in here that that is different than that, myself included. We all struggled with this, some more than others. And frankly, unless you acknowledge this and grieve over this, what the Spirit has for us this morning is going to fall on deaf ears. And God will chasten you, and unless you repent, you will forfeit blessing in your life and eternal reward. It's as simple as that. So what a privilege to come together, right, and to hear the word of the Lord. So with that in mind, let me read the text to you. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing what shall I say to you shall I praise you in this I will not praise you for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. I wish to examine this under three headings that I hope will be helpful to you. We are going to look at, first of all, a spectacle of division that Paul describes, and then secondly, a ceremony of unity, and then finally, a warning of judgment. Now, some historical background that will help you understand what's going on here. During his last Passover meal in the upper room with his disciples, on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus established the ordinance of communion. It's also known as the Lord's Supper. So you will see those terms used uh, synonymously, interchangeably. And God instituted the Passover meal, we know, to celebrate his deliverance of his covenant people from 400 years of enslavement uh, with the Egyptians. And he did that in 1446 B.C. And you will recall that the people were to put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts and on the lintel of the door of every house, of every Jewish home, to protect them from the angel of death that would visit every single household in Egypt And wherever he saw the blood, he would pass over and spare the firstborn. By the way, that was the tenth plague. Passover was also associated with the feast of unleavened bread. And what they would do is prepare a lamb. Each household would prepare a lamb, and then they would apply the blood of that lamb after they sacrificed it to the doorpost and the lintel. Read about that in Exodus 12. And on the evening of the 14th of Nisan... The Passover lambs were slain, and then they were roasted, and they were eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and This emphasized the need for a hasty departure, and it was reminiscent of the bitterness of their bondage. So all of this was symbolic, and Exodus twelve and verses or twelve, actually verse one, it gives all the specific details. What I'm saying here, 1 through 14, gives all of the specific details. But in verse 14 in particular, he says this, Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. And in Acts 2.42, we learn that there were four things that marked everyday lives of the believers. There we read, they devoted themselves to, number one, the apostles' teaching, number two, fellowship, number three, the breaking of bread, which was communion, and number four, prayers. And there's some historical evidence that suggests that that many of the households celebrated communion at every meal. And, of course, all of this was fulfilled in the death of Christ. May I remind you of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may... Be a new lump, just as you were in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And as you will see, the Corinthian believers were doing this on a regular basis, but not in sincerity and truth. The first century church. Also had what was called love feasts. We read about this, for example, in Jude 12 and other passages and other historical documents. And this involved what we just call fellowship meals, similar to what we do after church here on, on Sundays. It was a time to celebrate koinonia or fellowship. Um, the the, the mutual sharing of, of, of life in Christ and our service in Christ. It was a time to enjoy the oneness of the body because of our union with Christ. It was a time to love and care for one another. And so they would do this, and at the end of that fellowship meal, that love feast, they would have communion. But as I said earlier, because of remaining sin, Because the people at Corinth were arrogant and divisive and self-indulgent and forgetful of Christ, they turned all of this into a gluttonous, drunken party. They turned their love feast into a mockery of everything it was intended to be. And I might also add that false teachers were already beginning to form their ideas and their philosophies and their plan of attack, even by now. And so no doubt, they're a part of all of this. And later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to have to deal with them, because they they begin causing all kinds of trouble. The people had become like those Peter condemned in 2 Peter 2 and verse 13. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Now, folks... It's bad enough to be around drunks. Don't you hate that? E- even even when they're approaching a level of intoxication because, you know, they're loud, they got that slurred speech and they get in your face and everything's stupid and funny and it's just obnoxious. I, I just don't want to be around it. Nobody does. They lose all sense of decorum and decency. But folks, for that to happen when you're supposed to be reflecting upon Christ's sacrificial death in our stead the new covenant in his blood I mean that that's just incomprehensible that is a scandalous mockery of all that that time is supposed to represent and so for this reason Paul says in verse 17 but in giving this instruction literally this command I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse in other words you're coming together and you're doing more harm than good So he then goes on to describe, first of all, what I would call a spectacle of division. Notice verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. Divisions. Schismata in the original language. We get our English word schism from that. And it refers to a division of groups, two opposing factions. Now, Undoubtedly, these divisions were reported to the Apostle Paul in those documents from Chloe's family that are mentioned in chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. And we know that in uh, chapter 1, we hear about those divisions. Remember how uh, they were fighting over personalities and who's their favorite preacher? You know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas, well, I'm of Christ, and all that silly stuff. And in chapter 3 and verse 1 and following, remember, they were called men of flesh. In other words, they're carnal, they're they're fleshy. He called them infants in Christ. And the way that was manifested is they were filled with jealousy that produced strife. They loved themselves more than the church. They were fiercely loyal to certain leaders that would help them promote their own agendas, whatever that might be. And six times in 1 Corinthians, we read that they were puffed up. They were puffed up. It means arrogant, self-promoting. They were filled with pride. They had an inflated opinion of themselves. By the way, puffed up is the opposite of love, which builds up. And that's what we see going on in the church. And because divisiveness is always rooted in jealousy and pride, divisive people will always find something to divide over for the purpose of exalting themselves. And Satan started this in the garden, didn't he? Dividing Eve from Adam and Adam and Eve from God. I think of Miriam and even Aaron, who became jealous of Moses, remember? Remember? They murmured against him, and God struck Miriam with leprosy. I think of Korah, who allied himself with some of the Reubenites and and other leaders of Israel. And they instigated and organized opposition to the authority of Aaron and the priests and Moses himself. And because of that divisiveness, you remember what God did. He, He caused the ground to open up and to swallow them and to also consume 250 men with fire and so forth. Remember Absalom's jealous pride. He wanted to take over his father's kingdom. So he began to sow seeds of discord and divisiveness and to get people to follow him. And it resulted in murder and usurping his father's throne and ultimately cost him his life. And, of course, you have divisiveness all through the early church with the Judaizers that were demanding that people also uh, observe the the Jewish feasts and be circumcised for salvation and so forth. And later, in 1 Corinthians 12, we read of, of those who bemoaned the fact that they did not have the showy gifts. And those that had the showy gifts were belittling them. Talk about division and arrogance and jealousy. So Paul responded in first corinthians twelve twenty four but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that members may have the same care for one another. You see folks, divisive people will rip a church apart, and that will dishonor Christ. No wonder the Lord says that he hates, quote, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Proverbs 6, 18 and 19. In Proverbs 8, verse 13, he says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way, and the perverted mouth, he says, I hate. The perverted mouth. Boy, we have to guard ourselves against that. The Hebrew text literally means the mouth that is crooked and twisted, a mouth that speaks perverted things. This would include lies and and slanders, bad doctrine, divisive speech, factious speech that tears down and destroys. Remember, they were struggling with in Galatia. Remember in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 14, Paul says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbors as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another take care that you are not consumed by one another so like wild animals they were viciously attacking each other over external religious ceremonies and circumcision and that type of thing it's absolutely ridiculous the things that people will fight over in a church people that are ruled by the flesh rather than the spirit they become divisive they try to separate you know the, tripe, the, the, the type of person. Maybe you have been that person. They are the fault finders that are always lobbing out little grenades of slander to make somebody else look bad and to make themselves look good, make others look small so you can look powerful. And this is what was happening in the church at Corinth, but more along sociological lines the rich bet- versus the poor. Now, back to 18, verse 18. He says, when you come together as a church, I hear the divisions that exist among you. And in part, I believe it, verse 19, for there must also be factions among you. This is interesting. A faction speaks of a circle of people with a common purpose that dissent with another group. It's the we-they mentality that develops within a church. And he says, there must be. In other words, this is necessary. It translates one Greek word, day. There must be. This is necessary. This is unavoidable. Why? So that those who are approved may become evident among you approved greek term dakamas it it carries the idea of something that has to be tested to see whether or not it is genuine it's an adjective that can be used to describe a person or an object and it carries that idea of that which is tested it was used to describe for example precious metals that have been tested by fire to guarantee that they're free of impurities it was used also to describe for example a soldier that is quote tested in battle And in this context, it speaks of someone who's proven to be genuine, not a fake or a counterfeit. And Paul's point here is that divisive, factious people are necessary in God's plan for his church. He allows them to exist in it for the purpose of being a contrast between the genuine and the fake, the godly from the ungodly. Those walking in the spirit versus those walking in the flesh. Remember in Titus 3.10, Paul says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Reject literally means have nothing to do with that person. You confront them, you try to help them, you try to help them see it, but if they continue on, have nothing to do with them. The divisive, factious person is always criticizing others over church policies, over personal disputes, over issues of Christian liberty and, and congregational matters, disagreements about doctrine, and all of these types of things. And again, this is the fruit of, of a, a self-deceived, arrogant, unteachable heart. This is consistent, by the way, with what Paul described as the fruits of the flesh, deeds of the flesh, detailed in Galatians 5. For example, in verse 20, he describes it as enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. And you know how it works. People begin to pull out their little book and they start keeping a record of wrongs. You don't even know they're keeping score on you, but they are. And so they make this list up, and they see themselves as the victim. They use this list of grievances to enlist others to join their cause, and together they launch a campaign of of criticism and malicious gossip designed to get others to join their cause and to discredit their adversaries. And this ignites a firestorm of rage and revenge and And in their mind, it's absolutely justified, because after all, theirs is a righteous indignation approved by God. That's how that happens. I've seen it in this church. It happens at every church. And that's what Paul is saying. It's going to be there. It's necessary to make that distinction between those who are approved and those who who are not. And of course, if their campaign fails and fails to get the opposition to fall in line, then they will somehow attack as they did in Paul's in in Corinth they will attack Paul or whoever the minister is and the poor Timothy oh man did he get hammered with this type of thing he was hammered with it and now now they can't they couldn't do what people do today when things don't work out today they just get mad and 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 go find another church sometimes that's a legitimate thing to do sometimes it isn't and then of course they They post Bible verses on Facebook and and all kinds of testimonies about how wonderful their new church is, just a way of continuing to attack their old church and so forth. And then after the honeymoon is over and things don't go their way, the whole cycle repeats itself. Well, these people are like cancer cells in a body. They will absolutely destroy a church. And that's why Paul is so concerned about all of this. And you see how some of this... The, this divisiveness, this factiousness, is playing itself out in the context of the Lord's Supper. Now, Paul gets more specific about this. Notice what he says, verse twenty. Therefore, when you meet together, and by the way, he's referring here for your evening meal, for your love, love feast that's often followed with by communion. He says, "It is not to eat the Lord's Supper." In other words, there's nothing honoring about Christ in what you're doing. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. Now, let me give you some more background here to help you see what was going on in that culture. Because it's a bit different than the way we might see things. In the Greco-Roman society, they had all kinds of discriminatory conventions, if you will, that were part of their honor-shame culture. Status was everything to them. Status would determine where you sat in a wealthy home. Now, we might have a little of that in our home. The kids don't sit at the adult table, right? They kind of sit over here. So we have a little of that, but it was much more pronounced in that culture. It determined what you ate, what you drank, who you were allowed to associate with. And so splits and dissensions were just part of their culture. Historical archaeological research sheds some light on just the dining customs and the arrangements of that Roman world. They have, for example, uncovered large Roman villas that have been excavated, and it, in them you, you, you see revealed the boundaries that they had that would separate classes by, the, by their status, the different gifts, gifts that would come. In fact, in the museum at Corinth inside the, the formerly contained site of ancient Corinth, you can see uh, a very impressive mosaic floor of what's called the triclinium. That was their word for a dining room from which uh, that the mosaic floor was removed from one of those villas. It, it's about 24 by 18 feet. And if you follow uh, the, 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 the lines in the in the In that whole triclinium, you will see that if you were to allow for couches for guests to recline at an appropriate table, um, you could get about nine or ten guests uh, in that area comfortably. And then also you can see in these villas uh, an entrance vestibule that led to an atrium or a courtroom, a courtyard hallway, which in turn would have four or five rooms adjacent to it. And the atrium was about 16 by 20 in one particular case, which is pretty indicative of the size of those places. And in that atrium, they had what was called an impluvium, uh, which was a pool to collect water. And that would be in the center, which would allow for another 20 to 30 guests to squeeze into that area if they were to sit. If they were to stand, you might get 50 people in there. And the atrium would would be the overflow for those guests who were not allowed in the triclinium. We read from Pliny the Younger, who, by the way, was a lawyer and an author and a magistrate of Rome during that time. He describes in detail the categorization of qualities of foods and drinks as marks of favor to grades of guests. He says this, quote, "...the best dishes were set in front of himself, the host." And a select few. And cheap scraps of food before the rest of the company. He had even put the wine into very small flasks, divided into three categories. One for himself and us, another for his lesser friends. It says in parens, all his friends are graded. Can you imagine grading your friends who are coming over to your house? You know, don't give Jake the good stuff, give him this, you know. I mean, that, that's the type of thing they, they would do. And then he said, uh, and, and another third for his own freed persons. In another document, a volume of essays called Dining in a Classical Context, um, a scholar by the name of Booth says, only those who assumed the toga virilis, that is, those who were adult males of high status, had authority to, quote, bestow freedom to recline in the triclinium favored boys might sit at the front of the couch used by the high status male the pattern encouraged the notion even if indirectly by analogy that to be invited to recline near the host in the triclinium signified a mark of favor from the host which thereby conferred added status upon the recipient of the honor so again folks bear in mind in that culture status determined what you would eat what you would drink where you would be located with reference to dining and close friends there would would be the the, the head person would have his close friends closest to him then you have the second-class friends then you have the hangers-ons the clients the head persons youngsters and servants all the way out to the end and all of this was part and parcel of the symbolic world of that honor shame culture now evidently in the church of rome or at a church at corinth undoubtedly they met not in a building like this but in a, a wealthy patron's home a villa type of thing like i've just described and they would set accordingly and the wealthy would according to what paul is saying here they would bring a banquet for themselves it would be pot luck for the people in the triclinium and good luck for the rest of you, you know. Um, there might not even be a pot for you, you know. They, they, the one group gets prime rib and the rest of us get, you know, mac and cheese and stale chips or whatever. And so they would sit by themselves, the, the, the people of the highest class, they would sit by themselves in the triclinium. And they would gorge themselves and they would get drunk. And the poor lower class folks would be out on the edges. Many of them probably brought nothing and they felt isolated and went away hungry. Now the point is, this is just an unimaginable abuse of what the Lord's Supper is to be all about. The Lord's Table is to be about celebrating the unity of the church and the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, Paul says, "...is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ." is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ. And so this should be a time of of celebration of our union with Christ and with each other, a time for us to examine our own hearts before the Lord, a time for us to love Christ and to love one another and to serve one another and live out the gospel, a time to manifest the Christless love of Christ to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to celebrate his giving of himself, it's not a time for us to segregate and be a part of some special inner group by invitation only. That's what was going on in the church. And then they use it as a time for gluttony and drunkenness. So in verse 22, he says, "What?" That could literally be translated by the way as, "Surely, it cannot be. Can it?" That's the idea. What do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. I think of what James said. Remember, in chapter two, beginning in verse six, he says, "Do not, do not God, choose, or did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him?" but you have dishonored the poor man. And that's what was going on here. So first we see Paul describing a spectacle of division. But secondly, we see him describing the contrast, a ceremony of unity. Notice what he says in verse 23. For I received from the Lord. Now folks, let's stop here. Do you realize what he's saying here is what I'm about to tell you, I got this directly from the Lord's mouth. That's the idea. I didn't get this through the other apostles. And remember now, the Lord himself prepared Paul for ministry in the Nabataean wilderness. Read about that in Galatians 1, verse 17. So, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Again, think what a blow this must have been. All these people are sitting there. They've sobered up now. All right. They know what has just happened. And he's laying it on them. They're, they're hearing this letter read to them. So after exposing their selfishness and the abuse of the Lord's table, he's going to tell them what the Lord himself has said. And I might also say that because 1 Corinthians was written before any of the Gospels, what we have here before us is the very first account of the institution of the Lord's Supper, which includes direct quotations from Jesus himself. So at the end of verse 23 and following, he says, you know, this this is what I've delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Oh, my goodness. I mean, folks, this is is a description of the exact opposite of what was going on with these dear people. Now, what is described here is actually only a portion of what they would do at an actual passover meal like what jesus did in the upper room let me describe that to you very very briefly there were actually four cups of wine that would be passed around during the passover meal after the first cup they would eat bitter herbs that were dipped in a fruit sauce and a message would be given by the host in the meaning of passover and the symbolism of what they were eating and then they would sing part of of, of the Hallel, which, which means praise, which com- was comprised of Psalm 113 through 118. We read Psalm 113 this morning. And then they passed the second cup. And after that, the, the host would, would speak and pass around unleavened bread. And, and then they would eat a meal of the roasted sacrificial lamb. And then the third cup would come. And after prayer... They would pass around the, or or they would sing the final portion of the Hallel. And then finally you have the fourth cup that celebrated the coming kingdom. And it was this third cup that Jesus blessed that became a cup of communion. And all of this, of course, was a celebration of what Christ has done, what he was about to do. And now we look back and we can see that. So, for us, it's a celebration of what he has done, is doing, and will do. In fact, Luke says in Luke 22, 20, And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So, beloved, when we come to the Lord's table we must do so with utmost reverence. We are sharing the bread of his body and the cup of his blood. Can there be anything more humbling in all of the world than a ceremony such as this? Notice again verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's interesting. This carries the idea, by the way, of proclaiming the gospel. You see, the grammar and the syntax and the word order here in the original language places the emphasis on the death of the Lord. And since the present tense is used for the word proclaim, we know that it's speaking of continuous present action. So literally what he's saying here is when you participate in the Lord's Supper, you are constantly proclaiming the Lord's death. You're proclaiming the gospel In other words, it carries overtones of speaking or preaching publicly. That's what's happening there. And while there's no prescribed number of of times that we are to do this, he says, as often as we do, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And my, what a wonderful hope that is, right? A hope of future blessing. You know, as we were doing that this morning, I was just thinking, Lord, thank you that you are coming again so thankful for that and what a message to the world that we are not ashamed of the gospel, that we are not ashamed of our Savior and Lord, that we are citizens of another kingdom that we await our king and therefore by its very nature the church is is radically different than anything that we have on earth if I can quote something that I have written in, in a book that's soon to be released. In light of this, I say, it is The church is an outpost of a celestial kingdom the world cannot comprehend. It is made up of alien people whose citizenship is in heaven, people who have received a word from another realm and who long to leave this earth at God's appointed time. So, when Christians meet together to worship, they do so because an unfathomably glorious God has summoned them to worship Him and hear from Him, making their worship surfaces an otherworld experience, a gathering where God speaks through the stammering lips of divinely appointed men and where sacraments are administered in remembrance of Christ, keeping His worshipers in a state of breathless adoration. Beloved, all of this is at the heart of the Lord's Supper, where we remember Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, where we partake of Christ's spiritual presence in the fellowship, not in, in the elements itself. And it's a time when we enjoy intimate communion with him. It's a time when we worship him in holiness. It's a time when we continue to proclaim the gospel of Christ it's an opportunity to once again anticipate His return and His glorious kingdom. Verse twenty-seven. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. An unworthy manner. It carries the idea of of having an attitude of of uh, that, that needs to shall I say, an attitude that is not worthy of what is going on there. We are to have an attitude that is suitable, that is fitting for the worship that is taking place. What is happening here should, in our hearts should properly adorn just the profound solemnity of that ceremony. So don't make a mockery of the symbols of the Lord's death. That's his point. To do so would literally identify you with those who killed jesus so in other words when we come to the lord's table we don't do it in an unworthy manner and that could include a lot of things i mean certainly you don't want to come to it as if it's just some mindless ritual that we do in our church the first of every first sunday of every month it's so much more than that you don't come to it with a heart of apathy or being kind of disinterested and certainly you don't come to it with with unconfessed sin with an unforgiving heart with the bitterness or grudge against somebody in the church or or any of that type of thing what a mockery that would be when you celebrate what christ has done for us and sacrifice him himself for our sin and certainly you don't come together with feelings of superiority i'm glad i'm not like those other people over there and that's what they were doing So we've seen a spectacle of division and a ceremony of unity. And finally, Paul gives a warning of judgment. Verse 28, he says, but a man must examine himself. The idea here is he must assess the motives and the intentions of his heart. He must be brutally honest with himself. This is a time for for rigorous self-examination. To determine who we really are before the Lord and who we ought to be. A time when we confess our sins and our self-willed motives, our selfish attitudes, whatever. And in so doing, he says, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Important for you to understand when he says, for he who eats and drinks eats ...and drinks judgment. Uh, The the term there is crema in the original language... ...and it refers to the Lord's uh, discipline upon the saved. Unlike another term, catacrino... ...that he uses uh, in verse 32... uh, ...translated condemn. That that speaks of eternal condemnation for the unsaved. So he says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick... ...referring to just severe illness... And certainly, the excesses of gluttony and and drunkenness bring about their own judgment. But it can be more than that. And then he says, and a number sleep, which is a metaphorical expression of death. Oh, dear Christian, the Lord's table is serious business. He is not deserving of anything other than our utmost praise and deepest worship. So he goes on in verse 31, but if we judge, in other words, if we evaluate discerningly ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. In other words, we're not going to come under divine chastening. But, verse 32, when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. I think of what Jesus said through John in Revelation 3 and verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten Therefore, be zealous and repent. What a wonderful statement. It's fascinating, isn't it? That in God's sovereign grace, he has ordained our salvation in eternity past. But he also disciplines us, as we see here, so that we will not be condemned with the world. Now think about this. Because of God's reproving love... You might say we are guarded from relapsing into a state of wickedness like the rest of the world and thus incur the eternal condemnation that will be theirs. And for the believer, we know that God's judgments are evidences of his fatherly love for us, not samples of his final consuming wrath as it is for the unbeliever. And how many times have I seen, perhaps you have seen, God's hand of discipline in sinning believers and certainly I've experienced it myself haven't you it's not fun but God does this to save us from ourselves I know numerous examples of men and women who profess Christ who allowed themselves to start being ruled by the flesh rather than the spirit and as a result they suffered untold heartache and some even death Sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies, divorce, all kinds of disasters in their life, obesity, and the associated illnesses with all of that. And certainly just the debilitating stress that comes from foolish decisions. We've all been there with that, haven't we? Stress as a result of problems in marriage and bad choices with how we've raised our kids and and how we've conducted ourselves at work or at church. And by the way, stress alone causes elevated levels of the stress hormone cortisol to interfere with different aspects of our body. It interferes with learning. It interferes with memory. It lowers immune function It causes uh, lack of bone density in women, for example. It increases weight gain. It causes high blood pressure. It causes high cholesterol, heart disease, on and on and on it goes. Stress is no fun, right? So the last thing you want to do is start dishonoring the Lord in your life and experiencing his chastening and increase your stress level that's already high enough just living in this fallen world. Verse 33, so then my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Said differently, repent of this arrogance, this divisiveness. Repent of your self-indulgent spirit and your forgetfulness of Christ and all that this represents. And he says, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. Then he adds this really a bit humorous. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. It's kind of like what mom used to say to me, your dad will talk to you when he gets home. You know, that's kind of what's happening here. So there's other isolated issues with regard to their fellowship and worship that aren't mentioned here that he's going to deal with. Well, I hope you, I hope you see the importance of what the apostle is saying here. And I would just challenge you to ask yourself, you know, am I... Am I prone to being divisive and factious? And and, and if you are, folks, please, please deal with that. Do I partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Do I have some of the same kinds of, of prejudices as the saints at Corinth? Just ask the Spirit to bring conviction to your heart as you examine these things. And then when it's all said and done, celebrate God's grace because if you honestly evaluate yourself you're going to see a lot of stuff you don't like right man i had to endure this all week you just get you know not even an hour of it right And so examine your heart and celebrate god's grace and and the fact that the spirit of god would love you enough to speak to you even this morning through his word so that you can see these things and deal with them because he wants to lavish his love and his blessing upon you and we want to see that manifested in our hearts, in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our church. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truths of your word that speak so directly to each one of us. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will change us for having heard and examined what you have given to us this day. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.